The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning again, and welcome to Church of the Cross. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The language of the quest, journey, captures the human imagination. It has for some time, whether it's Homer's Odyssey, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, or Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, we love the language, the story of the journey. In more contemporary times, That language of questing of journey has been married often to the language of desire. It's you too singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, or Ariana Grande more recently singing, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. (laughs) It's the language of search and desire, the language of quest. It resonates with us. Pete Townsend of The Who was speaking of something universal when he sang in the song, The Seeker. They call me a seeker. I've been searching low and high. I'm a seeker. I'm a really desperate man. We're continuing our series, begun last week, on the questions Jesus asks, the questions he asks of us. Last week, we we focused on that most fundamental of all question, the question at the core of the Christian faith, the question that every human being must answer at some point, who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? So much hangs in the balance upon that question. Yet if that's the most fundamental, most core question, the question that is our focus this morning in John chapter 1 perhaps is the one that most resonates, most speaks to our hearts in a straightforward fashion. It speaks most directly to us. What are you seeking? What do you seek? This question comes as the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. John records these words as the first words of the Word made flesh. That this is the case suggests that this question, these words, may mean something more than their immediate surface-level context might suggest. The question comes as Jesus is followed by two disciples of John the Baptist. And in the immediate situation, the question Jesus asks can be understood as this basic introductory inquiry. What do you want? What are you looking for? But that these are the first words in the gospel spoken by Jesus, the incarnate word, who will later on be described as able to see into the hearts of women and men. He knows the answer to the question before he asks. Along with the fact that this word seeking features so prominently in John's gospel. All of that suggests that this question, in fact, should be understood at a deeper, more significant level. 
On one level, this basic introduction, and on another, something more significant, getting at something deeper. Theologian Michael Buckley paraphrases this question this way. What do you want out of life? What sustains in your life now a sense of meaning, of joy? When death comes, what will you want your life to have meant? That the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, might take an interest in our desires, in our seeking, is hard for some of us to believe. Catholic Archbishop Jose Gomez suggests this is a radical aspect of the Christian message. That we live in a vast and anonymous world where it's easy to believe that we're not noticed or notable. That what we are seeking after is of no consequence to anyone. What's more, we live in the midst of systems and arrangements where what we can produce or what we can consume, the tasks we complete, are what is measured and valued. With these realities in mind, we might have expected Jesus to take no notice of the disciples at all. Or to begin with these two, to begin the gospel, his public life, with a a list of commands and demands. If you want to journey with me, if you want to be my disciple, here is what I expect. What's your resume? What can you do for me? Do you qualify? I know college football began in earnest this past week, and I saw an article about the famous coach Mike Leach. He teaches a class at his university, a class that's so popular that just to get into the class, you have to write an essay to find out if you pass muster, if you qualify. 1 Kings chapter 12 tells the story of the beginning of the reign of King Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon, whose wisdom and building projects were the stuff of great fame, Rehoboam pales in comparison to his father. And when he starts his reign, perhaps out of that insecurity, attempting to project strength and power, he begins with this claim. He says, as much as my father expected of you, I will expect even more. I'm twice the man my father was. My iron fist is heavier still. It doesn't go well for Rehoboam or the people he rules. Some translations describe this episode as Rehoboam's folly. And it's that folly that leads to the division of God's people into two kingdoms. We've all, I suspect, had the experience of leaders, of bosses, of supervisors, like Rehoboam. Insecure, demanding, unconcerned with us and our desires, focused upon the tasks we might complete for them, how we might serve them and their vision. That Jesus begins with this question, what are you seeking, suggests that he's different. The second person of the Trinity is different. God himself is different than we might expect. That he leads with this question, addressing the disciples in this way, suggests that Jesus' followers can expect to be more. More than just fodder for the completion of tasks. More in the language of the Gospel of John slaves and servants. You're more to God than what you might do for him. You're more to God than the ministry, however good and grand it might be. Twice in our reading this morning in verses 38 and again in verse 42, Jesus is described as looking, seeing, 
or gazing. First at these two disciples and at the end on Peter himself. And in these verses, two different verbs are used, but in both instances, the word choice suggests looking with intent, with great intent, seeing them. In the case of Peter, seeing beyond the surface to who he truly is, seeing him deeply and rightly, seeing him in a way that Peter himself cannot. In looking this way, Jesus confirms that as the character Hagar in Genesis 21 said, God is the God who sees, who notices, who sees you. The living God sees you. He looks intently upon you. His life-giving and gracious gaze is with you. In the vastness of God's creation, you're not anonymous, but noticed, seen, and loved. It's within the context of this loving gaze that the question, the question of our seeking comes. It's with eyes full of love for us, for his creation that Jesus asks, what are you after? What are you seeking? The question comes from the word made flesh, true love incarnate, looking upon you and asking. The great Saint Ignatius of Loyola invites those engaged in his spiritual exercises, this manual of spiritual disciplines, to begin not with an instruction to make ourselves aware of God's presence, though such advice is commonplace. It begins this way, with an invitation to raise my mind to consider, how is it that God our Lord is gazing at me today? You see, prior to any seeking of him, God himself in Christ, by his Holy Spirit, in love is seeking us, seeking you and me, seeking us out. Elsewhere in Scripture and and even beyond the biblical text, the language of seeking describes the seeking of men and women and the orientation of their wills in the widest sense, as one dictionary put it. It's this can mean this general philosophical search, this quest, this seeking, an animating hunger or motivation. Jesus' question here suggests an interest in what drives or motivates these disciples. Indeed, what motivates every reader or hearer of the gospel, what motivates us. In some ways, it would be easier had Jesus begun with a list of demands. Being my disciple means doing this, this, and this. Got it? Got it. There's a clarity, a precision to that kind of expectation. We'd have more control and less vulnerability would be involved. We'd be less exposed. You see, Jesus asking of this question is an invitation to trust him in a way that the simple doing of actions is not. It's a giving over of our hearts, our core desires, and motivations. I'm not saying that obedience is not required, that right action is unnecessary, but that Jesus invites his followers to something deeper, a deeper level of intimacy. As some priests in our diocese have put it, beyond our works and our words, God is concerned with our wants as well, 
with the orientation of our wills in the widest sense. To give such a thing, to give our hearts over to the Lord, can be so very difficult. If we've been hurt, if we have a particular understanding of who God is, perhaps as big brother, interrogating, surveilling, the idea of being vulnerable, of entrusting the desires, the longings of our hearts, answering these kind of questions is downright terrifying. Our desires are to be repressed or hidden in some way. I shouldn't long for such a thing. Put it away. This is why it's so integral that we would hear this question from Jesus first in the Gospel of John and hear it as an invitation, a question asked not in interrogation, but one that comes to us in love, in care, and compassion, an invitation to trust. Just this week, Christianity Today published an article by a woman theologian who works with the organization Crew, a woman by the name of Rachel Gilson. And the title of the article was, In the Face of Sexual Temptation, Repression is a Surefire Failure. And Gilson suggests that when it comes to any sort of temptation, any sort of desire, we have reflexively one of two ways of dealing with it. We either indulge, right? That's the Ariana Grande line, right? I see it, I want it, I like it, I got it. Or we repress and we avoid and Gilson suggests that God's invitation, Christ's invitation, is different than either of these options. She suggests Christ's invitation is to lift our gaze toward the only thing that truly satisfies desire. The only thing that remains when desire cannot be otherwise fulfilled, she writes, a vision of God. And that vision can only be won through prayer and practice. She might have said, can only be done by an honest naming of our desires before the Lord. More than just terrifying, this can be difficult to do because we're not in touch with, it is, with what it is that we are seeking. We're not in touch. Dag Hammersgold once wrote, the longest journey is the journey inward. Our desires, they're a knotted mess, hidden from ourselves. In our distracted, oversaturated with data state, we can't answer well the question that Jesus asked, what am I seeking? I'm not really sure. We don't know ourselves what it is that we're seeking, what it is we're after. Answering the question takes time, takes intention, takes the work of stilling ourselves in the presence of Jesus, of resting and paying attention. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus exposes the seeking of human beings. He exposes what it is that they were seeking. The word appears numerous times in the Gospel of John, almost entirely in relation to Jesus. People seeking him out or people seeking to kill him, to remove him, destroy him. There's something about Jesus that exposes what it is that we're seeking. Spend time with Jesus and what it is you're seeking will come to the surface. In my own life, some of the deepest intimacy I have experienced with God has come when I was finally, at long last, able to articulate the true desire of my heart. Able to articulate what it was that was animating my emotional state. Why am I agitated? What are my fears, my hopes rooted in? And to bring that before the Lord. Where a psalm or a phrase of Scripture or a phrase came to mind that crystallized 
what it was that I was seeking. For me, that takes time, time in prayer, in silence, in stillness, conscious awareness of God's compassionate gaze and presence. That I might know my own heart and offer it to him. What am I truly searching for, truly desiring? What is at the root of the stress, the fears, the hopes and joys? This time, time in prayer and silence and stillness, time in awareness of God's gaze, in the language of John's gospel, this is the practice of abiding. In response to the question, what are you seeking, the disciples of John respond with a a question of their own. Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? They ask. And in response to his invitation, come and you will see, they see where he's staying. They spend the night there, as verse 39 describes. They stay with him. This is a picture of Jesus' hospitality. Before any call or command, he invites those following to himself to stay with him. And the language of staying here The word here is the same word for abiding, used in John 15 famously. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he calls himself the true vine. He identifies abiding, staying with him, as the fundamental action of those who are his disciples. To be a follower of Jesus is to abide with him. Jesus says in John 15, 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, that one it is that bears much fruit. Abiding or staying with Jesus is a picture of intimacy, of relationship. It's a word used in Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit comes on him in the form of a dove and remains there. That word remains is the word abide. There's something of the life of God, the life God shares, the intimacy of the Father, Son, and Spirit in this word abiding, a reality we're called into, we're invited into. Biblical scholar Dorothy Lee is surely correct when she writes that abiding is neither passive nor static. It's an active state, one entered into by faith and cultivated in prayer and practice. In John 15, Jesus links obedient action and abiding in him in verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands his disciples, seek, seek first the kingdom of God. Abiding involves, relates to, the surrendering of of our searching, our seeking, our desires in favor of God's. In Colossians 3.1, the Apostle Paul implores the followers of Jesus to seek those things that are above, not the love of money, not the pursuit of your appetite. Seek what is above. Those raised with Jesus, those abiding in him, are called to seek his will, his kingdom, those things that are above. Yet perhaps paradoxically, or at least counterintuitively, this change in our desires, this transformation of our seeking, takes place only as we abide only as we remain with Jesus. We come to seek those things that are above. We come to seek the kingdom. We come to obedience, not just in our words, in our works, but in our wants, 
when we accept the invitation of Jesus, the question he asks, we accept the invitation, we bring our wants, when we name what it is that we are seeking, when we offer that up to him in trust as an expression of intimacy. One of my favorite teachers in seminary, who I've mentioned many times, is a man named Daryl Johnson. And Daryl Johnson was a preacher. He's the best preacher I've ever heard. And he talked about how preaching is dangerous. It's dangerous for the preacher. It's dangerous for me because I want you to like me. I want you to think I'm great at what I do. I want you to think I'm wise and I'm the best speaker you've ever heard. And Daryl talked about this in one of our classes. He said he talked about how he felt that. There was something in him that sought out the love, the adoration of the people who he might be preaching to. And he spoke about how he's talked with a mentor. He's like, I've got this desire and it's just wrong. Like, this is supposed to be about Jesus and I'm making this all about me. And the person said, Daryl, this is what I want you to do. As you walk from your seat to the pulpit, I want you to pray. He's like, all right, I got that, I got that. He said, I want you to pray. Jesus, I want these people to think well of me. I want these people to think I'm the best preacher they've ever heard. And Daryl was horrified, he said. He's like, that's exactly what I'm trying to avoid. I don't want to pray that. He said, but then, I, but then he went on. He said, what I want you to say then is, but more than that, I want them to think well of you. It was the offering up of this desire, the naming of it, and the framing it in the context of who Jesus is, naming it before the Lord. Each of us have those desires. Those desires are like horrified by. What might it mean to take your desires honestly and to bring them before the Lord? To frame them in the context of his goodness, his grace, his purposes and plans. What are you seeking? Name it before the Lord. On the front of our service sheet, we have another question that Jesus poses. This comes from Mark chapter 10 where the blind man Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, and Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Again, Jesus, the most brilliant person who ever lived, knows the answer to this question. But it's an invitation to trust, to intimacy, to public vulnerability. In this case, Jesus joyfully provides what it is that Bartimaeus is seeking. He's healed. He receives what it is that he desires. Joyfully, this meeting of desires can and does happen for followers of Jesus today. In his loving and gracious gaze, in his hospitality, there's healing and restoration. There is the satisfaction of what we seek after. And part of me wishes that I could promise you, I could guarantee you, that your desires will be met exactly as you hope. Part of me wishes I could promise you that. I want you to like me, right? And I I, I like you, too. I'm Canadian. It seems kind of polite and Canadian to want such a thing. But if your desires are anything like mine, if your seeking heart is anything like mine, for you to get precisely what you want as you want it could turn out to be very bad for you, very bad for your community, very bad for creation. You see, there's seeking in us, there's desires in us that must be rerouted and changed. And in coming and seeing, in our abiding with Jesus, there's a 
Yes, the meeting of some desires, and there's also the transformation of our desires. The transformation, often, of what it is that we are searching for. As we abide, as we keep company with Jesus, as we come to answer this question in trust and intimacy, we come to see that in him our desires are satisfied, and that he and his kingdom are that for which we are truly seeking. As we journey with Jesus, we come to love and seek different things. Our seeking itself is made new. The teacher who has in recent decades done more to help the church, more to help the disciples of Jesus see this reality is Dallas Willard. This theme permeates the writings and teachings of Willard. In one talk Dallas Willard gave, he famously said this. He said, you see, God has very high aims for you and me. His aim is that each one of us becomes the kind of person he can empower to do what we want. He says, I'm going to say that again. You and I are being trained and cultivated and grown to the point where God can empower us to do what, he want, what we want he goes on, now you recognize that a lot of work has to be done on your wanter before that can happen. But that is what life is about. And that's what we are learning to do as disciples of Jesus Christ. This kind of life, this kind of process is what Jesus' question in John 1 initiates. What do you seek? What do you want? Truly at your core. Bring it to the word made flesh, true love incarnate. Step into that place of intimacy with him, abide. Come and you will see and be made new. This is what happens to those two disciples of John. They stay with Jesus and they're changed. Changed enough that Andrew invites his brother, declaring, we found him, we've found the Messiah, the one in whom all our longings are fulfilled. Here's the one we seek, come and you too will see. So today, September 1st, 2019, what are you seeking? Not what should you seek, what's the right thing, the right answer, but what do you truly seek now, today? Jesus' invitation, the invitation of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who makes it by the cross so that we can abide with God, is asking is inviting us to entrust ourselves, our hearts, not as they should be, not as we would hope they were, but as they are, with our divided, knotted, misguided longings and seeking. He's inviting us to keep company with him as we are, to begin the journey with him again today, that he might meet our longings, and more than that, that we might come to seek after those things that truly satisfy, those things found in him and his kingdom. Come, and you too will see. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you as people with divided hearts, And we come to you knowing that you see what is in the hearts of women and men. 
And still you love us. Still you call us to yourself. Your hospitality, your gracious welcome extends to us. Would you strengthen us now? Would you give us the courage to journey inward, to know our hearts, to know what it is that we are seeking by the power of your Spirit? To bring those knotted and messy, disordered desires, bring them before you. Name them before you. that you might make us new and that you might reveal yourself again as the one in whom all our longings are satisfied, as the one who brings a kingdom in which our seeking is fulfilled. There are people here today who are seeking after things that they're horrified about, that they feel shame over. Would you, in your mercy and your grace, Jesus, draw them to yourself? Would you give us eyes to see, hearts that are aware of your loving, compassionate, and gracious gaze, even now in this moment? In your name we pray. Amen.